0: Nothing replaces a visit to the tasting room, but on occasions you can't swing a visit to wine country, consider bringing the winery experience to your home with Somley. Somley features many of the highest quality small production wines you won't find in stores or restaurants. Wine lovers like yourself can discover and get the very best Texas wine shipped right to your doorstep. And Texas wineries join the direct-to-consumer digital wine movement. You can now claim, customize, and list your wines for sale on Somley's Marketplace in minutes. With Somley, you can grow your DTC wine sales, club memberships, and visits to your tasting room. Whether you're a wine lover or a winemaker, check it out today at somley.com. And if you're looking for a custom crush partner, Bending Branch Winery offers full-spectrum to bottle services. The experienced winemaking team specializes in red wine production. Advanced extraction options are available to get the most out of red wine grapes. Join Bending Branch and its clients in producing highly awarded wines. For more information, email Dr. Bob Young at bob at Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 60. Today, my guests are Nikila Nara Davis and Greg Davis of Colisee Cellars. They've got a major presence as both High Plains grape growers and as winery owners in Fredericksburg. You'll hear from Nikila, who handles wines and vines, and Greg, who handles the rest. In the news, you'll find out who's receiving the Doc McPherson Award, why you should attend the Texas Wine Auction, and you'll hear from Valley Mills Vineyard Sarah Holder, who joins me to talk about rootstock and the ins and outs of planning a wine festival. Also, the word is out on which five wineries got my nod for the Toast of Texas winemaker panel. Thanks for listening to This is Texas Wine. The Lubbock Chamber of Commerce announced Jessica Dupuy, Wine and Spirits Columnist for Decanter, Forbes, and Texas Monthly, as the 2023 recipient of the Doc McPherson Award. She will be honored at the Taste of Texas Uncorked Wine Pairing event in Lubbock on Friday, March 24th. This is an annual event where the local wine industry honors Dr. Clinton or Doc McPherson, a pioneer of the Texas wine industry, by recognizing a professional that has made a significant impact on Texas winemaking or grape growing. Past recipients include Bobby Cox, Neil Newsom, Greg Bruni, and Kim McPherson. You've heard Jessica on this podcast before and perhaps on the wine podcast Another Bottle Down that she co hosts with Mark Rayshap. Congratulations, Jessica. I've had a couple of guests drop in to share some key information with you about some spring events that are coming up. The first is Valerie Elkins, Auction Coordinator for the Texas Wine Auction. She's also Director of Membership at William Chris Wine Company by day. Here's Valerie. Hey Valerie, thanks for joining me. I'm so excited about the second annual Texas Wine Auction. Can you tell me a little bit about the event?
1: I can, Shelly. Thanks a lot. I'm so excited to talk about the Texas Wine Auction. Our event is scheduled on Saturday, April 29, from 6 p.m. till 11.30 p.m. We're back at Vista Oaks Event Center again this year, which is just about 10 minutes west of downtown Fredericksburg. This is the premier event supporting Texas wine in our state, and we're so excited to welcome our guests.
0: Well, it's going to be a great time, and I'm excited that I actually get to attend this year. I know this is the second time that you've done this event. Tell me why this event came to be.
1: You know, we are really passionate about supporting and making impact within our community. And the Texas wine industry has been growing uh leaps and bounds over the last few years. So it's really exciting for us to be able to promote an event that supports Texas wine but also supports our local community. So we're raising money for two different things. We have a special auction item for our guests to bid on that will provide money for additional research on winemaking and grape growing practices in Texas. And that will go to increase the presence and understanding of Texas wine, not only in our state, but around the country and even the world, hopefully. And then secondly, the main focus of our event is to raise funds to provide health and wellness services to support our amazing hospitality workers within the Hill Country community. Since wine tourism is such a big part of our region, taking care of those who are taking care of our guests are really extremely important to us. Excellent.
0: And I know last year you made a good amount of money and you're planning even more um, fun and opportunity for... Fellowship and fundraising this year. So tell me what people can expect if they buy a ticket to attend the event.
1: Absolutely, it's going to be a super fun night. Uh, we'll start with a welcome reception from around six to seven fifteen, and during that time we'll be having a silent auction. And there's lots of great items that are experience, wine, travel, retail based. I think that our guests will really enjoy. And then we're going to move into the fun part of the evening, which is going to be a chef competition. We have eight chefs from around the state who are going to be cooking for us and providing a heavy appetizer at each station. And our guests will be going around to taste the food items and we'll be voting on their favorites. So that'll be a fun little competition aspect that we didn't have last year. And then we'll go into our program and live auction where we have some really great things, helicopter tours, Um, trips uh, to to other wine regions, great opportunities for for excellent uh, auction items that would be really fun to have. And then finally, we're gonna we're gonna have a little party after that. So we'll be dancing and DJing it up here. uh, Just just dancing and having a good old time.
0: I just uh, found out that the dress code is what cowboy chic? Is that what you're calling it?
1: Yeah, that's right. Anything that uh, fits uh, fits what you want to wear, we want everybody to be there and be comfortable, but have an awesome time.
0: I love it. And I'm excited to put something into the silent auction. I'm thinking about putting in a, an opportunity for someone to be the guest co-host of the podcast for an episode. What do you think?
1: Well, I would bid on that myself. <laughs> I think that sounds super fun. And I think there's just A lot of great opportunities for a lot of different types of things. So anybody that has any items that they may want to donate, whether it be for a silent auction or a live auction item, they can reach out to me directly.
0: Okay. And if wineries want to get involved, perhaps as sponsors, or how can wineries participate?
1: Yeah, very easy to contact us. We do have a website, www.texaswineauction.com. We have Instagram and Facebook pages at Texas Wine Auction. And also my email address is auction at texaswineauction.com.
0: Super. And this isn't just for members of the Texas wine industry. So anyone who's in the area is welcome to buy a ticket and come on out, right?
1: Absolutely. Anybody that likes good wine and likes to buy silent auction and live auction items and support your community while you're doing it, we, we welcome everyone.
0: I can't wait. Well, I will see you there, and hopefully we'll see a lot of uh, podcast listeners out there, too.
1: That would be great. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, thanks, Valerie. I'm dusting off my boots for this event. Remember that Becker Vineyards Barbera from Talent Vineyards in the Hill Country that won big at competitions around the state, including Top Texas Wine at Houston Rodeo's Uncorked Wine Competition? It also won gold recently at the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition. Well, it just won Best in Show Red at the American Fine Wine Competition. Becker also won silver for Reserve Chardonnay and gold for Reserve Viognier. Last year, in the same competition, Silverspur Winery won Best in Show Red and Best in Class for other red varieties for their 2019 Alianico. When the results came out last year... I reported that Sherry Gurman, who's the president of the American Fine Wine Competition, had said in a press release, panels of independent judges who taste wine, as these people do, are able to arrive at non-biased conclusions that benefit the consumer and the entire industry. She said Silverspur is a small winery in a state not known for top wines, but it won best of class for other red single varietal and best of show red. You can bet that it would not have won either, but for blind tasting. So this is two years in a row that Texas has won Best in Show Red at this competition. So two years, two top Texas wines. I'd like to suggest some new language for Sherry's next press release. How about something like this? Year after year, we can count on Texas for Best in Show wines. Wines from Texas show remarkable varietal diversity, but consistency in their high quality. Judges have come to expect that wines from Texas will dominate this competition. Now it's a pleasure to let you hear from Sarah Holder. She's festival coordinator at Rootstock, a Texas wine festival, and also tasting room manager and event coordinator at Valley Mills Vineyards in Waco. And best of all, she's a fellow wine podcaster. In this next clip, you'll hear a bit about each of those roles, as well as some tips for listeners who are planning wine events and festivals. Sarah, thank you for being here. I am very excited about Rootstock, a Texas wine festival taking place in my own hometown of Waco, Texas. Tell me a little bit about Rootstock.
2: Absolutely. So Rootstock is a Texas wine festival, as Shelley said. And since 2016, we have been connecting wine enthusiasts to some of the best wineries in Texas. I am very passionate and believe that you will not find a better place to taste authentic, ambitious Texas-grown wines and meet some of the people who create them. And it's such a fun experience. It's all 100% Texas-grown wine, Texas-made wine, all Texas. (laughs) Excellent.
0: So Rootstock is happening Saturday, April 15th at Indian Spring Park. And tell me what people can expect that come out to Rootstock.
2: Yeah. So every ticket will include entry to the festival, along with 15 different wine tastings and then four small bite food tastings as well. And you also get a wine glass you can keep as well. You will get to pick and choose the wines you'd like to taste out of all the wineries. We have 16 this year, actually, and each winery will have three different wines to choose from. So I always suggest maybe doing a lap and just looking around at each booth to see, you know, each tent like, oh, what do they have this year? Who's new this year? What do I want to taste? You know, what am I in the mood for? And then you can also purchase bottles of wine as well at our festival. Are
0: the participating wineries
2: all from the Hill Country? Yeah, I can read the list of wineries we have for this year, and I'm so excited. It's such a fun lineup. This year we have, of course, Valley Mill Vineyards. We also have Lost Straw Cellars, Farmhouse Vineyards, Curtin Alice Cellars, Callacy Cellars, Red Caboose Winery, Brennan Vineyards, Coleman Cellars, Three Texans Winery, West Cape Cellars, Rustic Spur Vineyards, Rancho Loma Vineyards, Chateau Wright, Solaro Estate Winery, Blue Ostrich Winery, and William Chris Vineyards. Nice. So
0: I'm familiar with a lot of those, and there are a few that are new to me, so always something new to discover when it comes to Texas wine.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the furthest winery is probably Chateau Wright. They're out in the Davis Mountains. (laughs) Excellent. And they're fairly new, too. They came out last year and had a great time, had a really good experience. They're really good people. And, you know, of course, we invited them back and they were like, oh, my gosh, yeah, let's go to Waco. So we're excited excited to have a lot of these guys back. It's going to be great. It sounds like a fun environment, too.
0: You've got some bands going and some games, it looks like. So great day.
2: Yeah. For the bands at noon, we will have the Lindsley Brothers starting the day out. And they are... Fantastic. They're these brothers and they're just energy and fun. And the key word for them I would say is happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they actually played our New Year's Eve event for Valley Mills Vineyards when we released our latest pet net. And they just honestly kept that party going. They were so much fun, so energetic. So I think they are amazing for a festival. And then we have Matt Klein band, which will just keep that energy going. They are amazing. Everyone's gonna want to get up and dance and Yeah, we'll have lawn games as well, because hopefully, you know, the weather's going to be perfect. Of course. Of course it will. (laughs) Yeah, of course it will. And then we do have a few food trucks as well. We have Baylor Street Pizza, um, Lee's Kitchen, which is um, like Vietnamese food, La Paria, which is kind of like a fusion restaurant, Um, Nico's Cheesecake. So, yeah, lots of different food bites and small bites that day as well. You will not go hungry, it sounds like.
0: Exactly. (laughs) And then if you still have any room for additional food, if you still want to try to catch dinner, there is an opportunity to attend a VIP dinner. What can you tell me about that?
2: Absolutely. So Pignetti's Italian Cuisine is doing our VIP dinner this year. And it's a five-course meal. And we're actually bringing in five different Texas wines from the wineries selected at Rootstock to do the pairings with them. And this is one of the main things that I do for the festival, too and it's the best. (laughs) You'll have amazing, amazing food. Chef Robert, he actually has been doing all the uh, VIP dinners and wine dinners at Pignetti's location in Temple, which has been there for quite some time. He does all of their special events, and he's coming down from Temple. Even though they have this Waco location now, he still is really passionate about his art, which is fine dining, and he's so willing and so excited to help us out with that and yeah, the menu is going to be fantastic and you get to try five more different Texas wines that some of them might not even be available at the festival. So it's kind of another elevated experience as well.
0: Wonderful. I know it takes a lot to run an operation like Rootstock and one opportunity that people have to participate is to be a volunteer. I think you're still looking for a few volunteers?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we would love the volunteers. (laughs) There's the first shift, which is about 12 to 3, and then the second shift is 3 till around 6.30 or so. And if you'd like to be a volunteer, feel free, listeners, to send me an email at rootstockwinefest at gmail.com, and I would absolutely love to connect with you, and we can get you a few little perks that day as well if you're willing to volunteer and help us out.
0: Good deal. So you said that tickets are $40 now online. There is a discount discount code. I've been reminding people that if they purchase online, they should use the code Shelly. They do go up at some point and they're $60 at the gate, correct?
2: Correct. So the week right before the festival, one week out, they'll go up to $50 online. And then, yes, it'll be $60 at the gate. So basically, I suggest buying your tickets ahead of time online at RootStockWineFest.com. I would get them now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We do have individual VIP tickets that are $140 and a sponsorship for $1,100. And that includes a table for up to eight at the dinner. And again, with that too, inquiring about a sponsorship, you can email me at rootstockwinefest at gmail.com. But if you're just looking for those general admission tickets, just definitely go over to rootstockwinefest.com. Use that code Shelly and get you a little discount. Perfect. Well, I know this
0: is happening rain or shine, but of course it's going to be shine, sunshine all the way. (laughs) Of course. Yes.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And we will have quite a few tents on premises as well, just in case, Um, you know, tents with tables and chairs and because saying shine too here in Texas, shine could be 75 or shine could be 90. (laughs) True. Very true. (laughs) There'll be shaded. Yeah. Shaded areas. We'll have plenty of water stations available and then no shortage of wine or food as well.
0: I love it. And your day job, you work at a Texas winery, right?
2: I do. So during the day, I am the tasting room manager and event coordinator at Valley Mills Vineyards, about 20 miles west of Waco. And if you also haven't been there, I would love to give you a tour, come out and do a tasting. And we also have 100% Texas grown grapes. We make all of our own wine in-house. And it's, A really, really beautiful, special piece of land also, that vineyard. And Shelly, you've been there. Yeah, I have. It's (laughs)
0: unbelievably beautiful. It is hard to believe that such a a lovely little gem exists right there. And I've heard that referred to as like Northern Hill Country. Do you say that?
2: Yes. I always tell people it's kind of the very, very tip of the iceberg when people think like Texas Hill Country, Mm -hmm. because you'll drive kind of, you know, through Waco through where it's fairly flat. And then all of a sudden you turn into Valley Mills and you turn literally into the winery and you're going, oh, this is different. And then we have about 52 stairs that you walk up. Well, we have handicap parking as well. But typically you'll walk up those 52 stairs and then you look out and you're like, oh, like where did this come from? I see hills to the right, hills to the left. And yeah, it's a really special place. It is.
0: Well, I know that you've been Planning festivals for a while, and I know that some of my listeners also have responsibilities for planning events and different types of wine festivals. Are there some things that people should keep in mind when they're planning for groups, large groups of people to come together around Texas wine?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, kind of each year, say rootstock. You know, ends on the fifth. It's it's on the fifteenth. Basically, that following week. The Rootstock Committee and I will get together and kind of go over, okay, what went well, what could have improved, um, breaking down the cost of everything. I will say the last three to four years, that's been something that you, you really have to keep up with. Just, you know, little things from the city, barricades and permits and working with TABC, really solidifying what I call the boring stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Work, Yeah, like, you know, working with the city, nailing down a date as soon as possible, um, getting your layout in, communicating with all the wineries very, very far in advance. You know, the more you can do, the further out is the most important. There's, you know, obviously small details like probably in the next few weeks, I'll nail down my concept for the flowers for the VIP dinner and like my decorations. You know, there are still things that you can do kind of on the fly. But yeah, planning an entire festival, a lot of work goes into it. Um, You really do have to be passionate about it. You really have to be excited for every single thing that you do. And we've had weekly Rootstock meetings the last, oh gosh, at least the last six months or so, just, you know, nailing down a time each week where all of us meet. We, I delegate a list out like, okay, you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. You're going to go here. Ready break. See you in a week. (laughs) Yep. Let's check
0: back in and see how it's
2: going. Exactly, because the committee, not all of us, you know, I might go a week and a half, two weeks, three weeks without seeing anyone else. So really nailing down those meeting times is very, very crucial because, you know, it's springtime, too, and it's event season. And for me personally, since I think I said earlier, I do the event coordinating at Valley Mills Vineyards as well. I really have to keep my calendar really tight, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but for it also to make sense where I still have a little bit of wiggle room, to where if something does come up, I can kind of drop what I'm doing and go, okay, this is for Rootstock. We're doing this today, and I'll plan everything else kind of around it, especially this far out since the festival is a month away. Oh, my goodness. That's very exciting. <laughs> and
0: um, yeah. I also want to ask you to give a little plug for your podcast.
2: Oh, amazing. So, yes, I have my own podcast, and it's called Psalm of Our Thoughts, S O M M. Mm -hmm. and me and my best friend Carter we have a podcast and our format is we talk about wine and then we do a food pairing and then we end with a vinyl pairing. I love it. Um, Yeah Rogue Media Network actually reached out to me a little over a year ago and they were like hey you seem like you really like wine do you want a podcast and I was like (laughs) I do but I need my best friend here with me and she actually runs wine shop here in Waco, which is a natural wine shop. So we have a really cool dichotomy when we're tasting wine together, too. And yeah, you guys should listen to it. It's you should. It's really good. I've enjoyed it. And
0: you talk about a lot of different kinds of wine. So sometimes there's a Texas wine, but often there are wines from all over the world.
2: Yeah, it's a great time. And we do live shows. We've done, we did one live show um, this past October, and we're kind of gearing up to get ready to do another live podcast show, probably sometime in the summer. When they asked us, "When do you want to do the next show?" all I said was, "After Rootstock." <laughs> right, just got a lot a little well, bit like, going on thing. between now and then. Yeah, I was like, "One thing at a time, and we'll uh, we'll get there." Well, Shelly, we also just want to thank you for being a sponsor this year for Rootstock. For us, this is really a dream come true. This is so huge for us. Whenever people come in to my job at the winery and you say Texas wine one out of five people go, have you heard that podcast from Shelly Wilfong? And we're like, yeah, oh my God, we love Shelly. This is Texas wine. Absolutely. So you have Uh a very, very far reach and a very um, loving community around your podcast. And I just can't thank you enough. We're so excited to have you involved this year. And your podcast is amazing. Oh my gosh. It's one of my favorites. Well, thank (laughs) you.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Finally, I've been hearing from a few people who are wondering which wineries will be pouring at the Toast of Texas. That's the Wine and Food Foundation event happening at Bee Cave on Sunday, April 23rd. Well, the list is up, so check out the full lineup on the Toast of Texas website. You'll also see that the five wineries for the VIP event have been named. I've selected five top wines and invited those winemakers or owners to participate in a panel that precedes the main event. And those wineries are Abastris, Siboney Cellars, Spicewood Vineyards, Uplift Vineyard, and Wedding Oak Winery. That winemaker panel is for members only and is almost sold out, but there are plenty of tickets left for the main event, which features 28 wineries, Tasty Food, And lots of fun there at Star Hill Ranch in Bee Cave, which is basically Austin. And of course, using the code Shelly will get you $10 off your ticket. Come raise a glass to Texas Wine and to the great work that the Wine and Food Foundation does to educate and support Texas wine and food enthusiasts, especially Texas wine enthusiasts. Find links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. Colisee Cellars Nikila Nara Davis and Greg Davis are serious about high-quality winemaking, sustainability, and thorough business planning. As they strive to deliver exceptional Texas wine, they're bringing new technology and new ideas to Texas, and they're doing it with some style and an Indian flair and a winery mascot called Dolly the Llama. Here's our conversation. You spent part of your childhood in India and part on the Texas High Plains. And I'm sure both of those things have shaped the person you are and the winemaker and business owner you are. So can you talk a little bit about both places and what impact each one had on you?
3: Sure. Well, yes, you're absolutely correct. I was born in the States, but I lived with my grandparents for my formative years. I would, where I grew up in India is very rural we lived kind of in a compound with every single family member who could live there, live there. So I got to know everyone really well. I remember my grandfather would wake up really early in the mornings and go to the farms. And so I got to tag along sometimes, and sometimes I stayed back, but I stayed back to help my grandmother. We still had like chicken coops. And so we got to run around with the chickens, pick eggs, milk the cows. It was a great experience and being hands-on and just really family-oriented. When I moved to the U.S., I didn't know English. I grew up speaking Telugu, and so when I moved back, my parents were actually in New York, in Queens, both trying to get careers going. And so I had babysitters a lot of the time, but to learn English, I would hang out with kids outside on the steps and just watch them play. And that's kind of how I really picked up learning English. My parents moved down to the high plains, like you mentioned, in 1996. So I remember when I was leaving New York, people were telling me I'm going to be riding horses to school and wearing cowboy boots and they don't have school buses in West Texas. And I believed all of it because I'd never been. And it was it was very different going from very rural to city to back to being a little bit more rural. But It was all the same dynamic. Everyone knew each other. I mean, a lot of people in this industry, actually, I went to high school with. It's very family-oriented out there as well. And same thing. You got your hands dirty. My mom always had a garden in the backyard wherever we were. And so I got to grow things all my life. And that's what really excited me about getting into the great business. You got to the high plane in 96, you said? Yes.
0: So... Were your parents immediately starting a grape growing business at that point?
3: They were not. We just heard a lot about grapes coming in. I remember going to Yano Estacado with my dad and taking the tour with him on a day that he had off just to learn the dynamics of winemaking. My dad doesn't even drink. He just really was always interested in how things work and learning as much as you can about the industries that were around us. And so Yano, it was big already back then and... They allowed kids to come in and go through the cellar. And that was a really neat experience that I remember. My cousins would come visit during the holidays, and that's what we did. We went to different wineries out there and saw how they ran. So farming and getting into grape growing did not come into play till 2013 for us. We always followed the industries, kind of heard about it through the Lubbock Avalanche, the newspaper out there. You'd hear a lot about Fredericksburg as well. I actually went to boarding school in Austin. So when my parents would come up to visit me, they'd always talk about this town called Fredericksburg. But I had never been able to go. They would come up, see me for the weekend, and they'd hop over here to come stay in a B&B and explore. And so it, it was always talked about the industry that was growing, but never it being something that we would get into. We had some family history go on with my father, and he really debated retiring. He is not retired, but he's doing good things. And he asked at the time, if I retire, would you come back to West Texas? And we start a business together. And I said, sure, not thinking what it would be or anything. We just figured we'd figure it out. And he brought up grapes again. And I was like, well, I love drinking wine. I love all about the history of wine. Why don't we just see if we could talk to someone about it who's in the industry? And he said, "Why don't you reach out to tech? They have a great program. They started. So I cold emailed Dr. Hellman. And next thing, you know, we were in an office for four hours with him. And he helped us. We'd send him places that we were thinking about, and he would check out the soil for us, do the soil study for us. and, It really just spun out of control, it felt like, at the time. We bought land in thirteen and started growing grapes.
0: That's an interesting story because I know so many of the grape growers in the High Plains were growing something else and then transitioned into growing grapes. And you started with grapes.
3: We did. Very fortunately, the person we were buying the land from was in row crops, but he had heard about grapes coming in as well. And he said, What would you like for me to plant, you know, before you put those vines in the ground? And we said, Peanuts, because of the nitrogen level. And he laid it out for us and got things going. Like I said, it just spun out of control, it felt like. But there were a lot of people around us that were willing to help and teach us everything. And not just in West Texas, in the hill country. There's a lot of education that we could get hands-on and learn. So tell me about Nara Vineyards. So Nara Vineyards, like I mentioned, we started in 2013. Dr. Hellman did tell us, start with one acre and then see how it goes. Our family doesn't do things slowly, so we planted 20 acres to start And then planted another 117 there, and then we've grown since. So right now, we have 140 acres under vine, 160 acres total. And we are at the point now, we are really focusing on clones and varietals that do really well with our soil, as well as how we grow. So as of last year, we now have eight different clones of cab, and so we are really focused on clonal cabernet programs. Excellent. And you do have some unique varieties that I want to get into talking about in a little
0: bit. But in the process of discovering what you wanted to have in the vineyard, were there things that you tried that you didn't like?
3: So when we first got into it, a lot of the advice was traditional spray programs, nutrition programs. And I already was kind of in the organic thought of things and how can we make things more sustainable? And also how can we change the way we grow. Like you mentioned, I think back then we did grow a lot of yield because we thought that's what would make really good wine. And as soon as we planted I got a job out in California, out in Napa, to really learn how I could be different in Texas and hit my goals. I had no intention of making wine at the time, but I wanted to give our clients, our customers, the wineries, the best grape I could give them. So they had the opportunity to make the best wine for their program. And what I learned is canopy management, like really thinning out the canopy to where we have fewer clusters on the vine. And I remember when I came back and I said that out loud, the only person who really looked at me and said, I understand what you're saying is my father. A lot of people looked at me like, that's nuts. You're trying to build a business. You're trying to sell your fruit. And if you're cutting off all that fruit, you're losing money. And it even came down to our farmhands when I was teaching them kind of how to manage the canopy and what I wanted taken off certain times, I clearly remember, and they were so sweet about it. They're like, you can't cut that off. That's money. Like that's, that's you're you're going to lose profits. And I kept telling them, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's going to make a better crop and it's going to keep this vine healthier in the long run. So it was a little bit of a learning curve on both sides.
0: You're maybe just a little ahead of your time, but, <laughs> but now that's the common knowledge, right? Right. Tell me a little bit more about your interest in sustainable viticulture. What does that mean for you out there?
3: Putting as little harmful things I can in the environment. So we are herbicide-free, pesticide-free. You could say we're organic. We're not certified. And I keep it open because I know we in Texas, you don't know what the weather is going to do tomorrow. And there may be some event that it causes us to get a product to where we do have to use it. Luckily, this is year 10 and we've been getting away with it for a few years. So sustainability to me is taking care of the earth as much as I can. We've tried different things, everything from putting in really good cow manure post-harvest to now moms are really getting into using sulfur burners to really work on our water system and our pHs out there in as much as a natural way as we can. I don't even know what that is. Sulfur burners? Yeah. It has to do with changing the pH of our water to where we're not getting all this buildup and there's also, it's for magnesium and then it leads into calcium as well. And so it's a just get our alkalinity down. Oh, interesting. And somewhere along the way,
0: you met Greg.
4: Yep. So I am the one that I think dragged her into the winemaking side of the business. So she was completely on the vineyard side back in 2015 when we met, but she clearly had an interest in making wine, but no desire to be in the business of making wine and having a winery. Whereas I didn't have any of the winemaking knowledge or vineyard knowledge, I came from management consulting so I had a lot of interest in running business, making processes, etc. And so we decided to kind of join forces where she takes on vines and wines and then I have the rest more or less.
0: I have to imagine that there was a very thorough business plan put together before you embarked upon the winery operation uh, side of things.
4: There definitely was. It was a lot of nights and weekends. <laughs> and when we presented our business plan to banks when we were looking for a construction loan for our land and the taste room and everything, we definitely got a lot of feedback that it was the most detailed business plan they had ever seen. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: In the past, I know some growers felt like in order to optimize their profits, that they should have their own wine label. But now, with so many new wineries coming into Texas and the demand for Texas grapes is higher... I wonder if there are still as many growers thinking that it makes sense to have a wine label.
4: To me, it seems like there's this kind of seesaw back and forth where some years it feels like there are tons of vineyards coming in and, oh my gosh, why would you ever plant more vineyard? There's you know, tons of stuff coming in. And then a couple of years later, it's tons of wineries opening up and it's like, oh my gosh, where are they going to get all this fruit? And it seems to kind of just seesaw back and forth. I mean, we still think it's a good decision to be on the winemaking side. I think there are some appeals of the winemaking side in terms of, you know, if you're on the vineyard side, all your sales come in, you know, one period of the year, whereas winemaking it spread out a bit throughout the year. I think it's beneficial for us to have both though.
3: I think it's also beneficial as a grower, starting off and growing to see the winemaking side as well, whether you do it full time or you jump head first and do it like we did. I think it's made us better growers we really understand more of what we need to do not just you know not just about dropping fruit but at the end goal of like what acid we want to hit and what sugar we want to hit and what kind of wine we want to make because that answer is different for everyone and it all ends up For me, it's about what kind of wine I want in my glass in the end is very different from the winemaker next to me and the grower next to me. But the only way you really understand it is going through different vintages from end to end, from growing to bottling. That makes sense. Tell me about the decision
0: to open a winery and to purchase this property and tell the listener a little bit about where we're sitting today.
3: I'll start this one off a little bit and then Greg can take over. It's kind of crazy. We started looking for land at the end of 2017. Greg and I had just gotten married. We just had the holidays and we decided to embark on this journey of trying to find land. We wanted to be in the hill country because two of our mentors, Dan Gatlin, as well as Ben Calais, they both started in Dallas, but they both said, get out to Fredericksburg. They're For a few different reasons, one, especially because they're close by. If we need anything, they're around the corner not just a phone call away. But we had a budget in mind and we didn't know if it would happen out here for us. And especially back then, most everything was right on 290. So we kept looking, we kept looking, and it was actually Father's Day weekend of 2018. I got a call from our realtor and bless his heart, like he worked with us with our budget and I know he has big clients hell, but he really believed in us, I think, and our story. And he kept telling me to come out and look at this piece of property. And I was doing barrel work out here and I just kept saying, That's not that just I've driven by it. It's so overgrown. Like there's not even a gate where we are. And I called Greg. I said, He keeps bugging me to go look and Greg's like, Go look. Go look. And he really pushed me into coming out and taking a chance on this property.
4: Yeah. So the Land we ended up purchasing used to be It's Gardens. It's just over 16 acres right next to downtown Fredericksburg. It's literally two properties removed from being within city limits. Uh, and the first time we actually came out onto the property rather than just being on Game & Lane, we were shocked that it felt like you were in the middle of the hill country even though you're right next to town. And so we fell in love with it. It was within budget, which was huge for us because even you know, end of 2017, beginning of 2018, prices had already gotten pretty high to the point that it wouldn't have left us money to build a tasting room and kind of achieve what we were hoping to achieve. And so we got really lucky. It was kind of, it felt like it was kind of at the tail end of when we needed to find land. <laughs> Otherwise, we were going to have to really put off opening for longer than we had hoped for, but it all worked out.
3: I remember that weekend too because I looked at it and then I was like, "Greg, you got to get out here." He was flying in from his client in D.C. at the time, and his parents were meeting us in Austin to have Father's Day all together. And we had some time on that Sunday, and we were talking about. And his parents were like, "Let's go, let's drive out there and see what it is." And I think we all just were like, "It's beautiful out here." My parents came soon after that to look at it too. As you can tell, we're very into our parents and families and. That's when I realized I I do believe in certain signs in life, and this property actually had jujubes. I'd never seen jujubes in the US. I thought they only existed in Asia. And my mom pointed it out. And so I was like, you know what? This has to be it. This this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Super cool.
4: And the couple that owned this before was Melvin and Matilda Itz. We met them soon after we purchased the property, and they were both extremely nice. Melvin's no longer here. But Matilda is still a complete sweetheart. She came by the tasting room, I think it was last summer.
0: Yeah. How did they use the land?
4: It was a farm. So we see uh, handwritten notes on old walk in fridges and stuff that are on property, but there was some okra, tomatoes, blackberries, I Eggplant. believe. Eggplant. Eggplant, and then habaneros. One of the cool things is when we were under contract, we were driving down from Dallas a lot on our weekends, and we'd always stay in Austin because it just made it a little bit easier to drive down to Austin Friday night and then come over Saturday. And we are waiting in line at a taco deli, and Nikila turns to the side and sees this picture of a guy holding a bunch of habaneros. And we look at the bottom right, and it says, it's Gardens Fredericksburg. And we're like, oh, wait, <laughs> that's the guy we're buying the land from? That's our property? Uh, which was really cool. And then they didn't have habanero salsa for a while. And I was worried it was my fault. But.
0: <laughs> they had to find a new, new
4: source. <laughs> this property used to be on the maps at all the taco delis where they'd say, you know, where all their food vendors came from, which is really cool. It's no longer there.
3: When we lived in Dallas, we went to taco <coughs> deli at least every Saturday morning after mm-hmm. a run on the Katy mm-hmm. Trail. It was a part of us. That's super cool. So how did you
0: anticipate using these 16 acres? I know you've got a small vineyard as you drive in.
4: Yeah. So I don't know. We knew we wanted the tasting room. Uh, We knew we were going to eventually put in a production building. We originally thought it was going to be at the back of where the tasting room is, but then, I don't know, just more and more time spent at the property, you kind of realize where things should naturally go. And so we knew the vineyard was going to go up front. Everyone wants to see a vineyard when they're coming to a winery and so that was kind of a natural place and it's a nice acre that we have there and then over time after we had the vineyard and we had the tasting room and we're looking at putting in the winery it's like you know what it belongs right next to that vineyard when you're coming in makes sense logistically for getting trucks in and out and
3: yeah I think our future plans is definitely putting walkways we actually hit the creek Barron's creek this property dog legs and that has beautiful live oak trees down there But Greg and I did a lot of the cleanup and the work ourselves, not the construction work, but outside landscaping. And so we've talked about maybe doing walking trails and having seating in different areas as we grow and also just kind of figuring out if we can, we say these things, but it also depends how our industry grows and changes. Mm -hmm. I've talked about wanting a little garden and a compost pile, (laughs) but that may be a little selfish of me.
4: Yeah, and we're working with the landscaper now to hopefully get some more fruit and nut trees in. So there are a bunch on property from years and years ago, but we want to do a little bit more so we can have more stuff featured on our charcuterie boards or you know elevated tastings that we do that can come off our own property. The criminal thing, though, as kind of Nikila was alluding to, is the prettiest part of our property is actually you know the back left side that goes down to the creek. It's gorgeous. It just needs a lot of work <laughs> to be cleaned up and reach its potential. But yeah, we have some trees back there that are a couple hundred years old. They're enormous and just beautiful.
0: Daytime. Never knew. Yeah, you've got you've got a lifetime ahead of you. <laughs> a lifetime of work and, and pleasure here. <laughs> yeah. So, but you're through grow, planting grapes to grow here. You think? TBD. TBD. Never say never. Yeah. <laughs> What's in the vineyard? What do you have planted up it's there? It's Cab Clone Four.
4: Yeah, so we did a really high-end planting of Cabernet for this vineyard. So the the vines are spaced pretty close to each other, and we're going to do a really low yield on there. So maybe one cluster per vine for a higher-end label that we have.
3: It's more French-style out there. It's a meter spacing, so a lot more nutrition going into a smaller amount of space, but still the same number of wines per acre. Interesting. I'm curious to talk to you about
0: Cabernet Sauvignon because... It is the number one grown grape in Texas, and some people don't believe in Cab in Texas. And I heard a winemaker recently say, just because the winemakers don't know what to do with it doesn't mean that it's not the right grape for Texas. So I'd love to hear you talk about what you think about Cab and, and your thoughts on growing it and making wine from Texas Cabernet Sauvignon.
3: So when I first got my start, that's what I was making out in Napa Valley or helping make is Cabernet, Malbec a little bit of white wine but not much. And I love drinking them for sure. And when we planted though, we didn't plant much cabernet. We planted a lot of different varietals. I think Texas is still kind of in some ways the same space where we're all trying to figure out what's great here, but I think a lot of things do well out here. We have consumers that love like you mentioned we grow some rare varietals like Teraldego. I think it makes a beautiful wine for sure. It's a big Italian grape for us. But As time went on, our Cabernet blocks were doing really well in the heat stress or in times where we have bad freezes. The vines recovered really nicely. And when we started getting on the winemaking side and seeing what it does in winemaking, I think it does beautiful, but it all comes back to canopy management. I've seen us grow Cabernet at four tons to the acre all the way down to quarter ton to the acre. And not because of weather events, because we intentionally did it. And it, I think when you pull back Cabernet, it can do really well. Now, when I say like clear out uh, canopy management, I'm not just talking about shoe thinning to where you're going to expose the berries to where they get heat stress. You're still using that canopy in your favor to create shade at the right times of the year. But like I mentioned, this time has gone on. I think there is room for Cabernet in Texas.
4: And we actually just released our first Cabernet under Colisee Cellar. So uh, we did a Cabernet Clone 8. It was released to Wine Club last month, and it is almost sold out. And it's been extremely popular.
3: It may be our quickest selling wine <laughs> to right? date. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because a lot of our Wine Club members, as well as customers that come in, are coming in for that Turraldigo and Merlot, things that either... You don't see a lot of, or we're the first ones to grow in Texas and put out a wine, so it makes it it catch their eye. But then they have the Cabernet. They enjoy it. So I think there's something for everyone for sure, but there's something to be said if they're still going back to that Cabernet.
0: I've been to your vineyard in the High Plains. Can you remind, is it in Brownfield?
3: It is. We are about half a mile from the main road. We're off of FM 403. Take a left, right past Terry County Tractor and go about a half a mile and you'll see us. (laughs) That's right. I remember that was
0: the, the landmark that we were supposed to look for when we were heading out your way. What does estate grown mean for this winery?
3: So estate grown to us is the fact that we do own every single acre of our grapes. We fully outright own it, but we don't make the wine out in Brownfield. We make the wine in Fredericksburg. And so that's why we're not estate we're not an estate winery, we're a state grown. So we are fully growing the grapes ourselves, but we are transporting it to a different ABA to produce it. So we technically are not a state.
0: Let's talk a little bit more specifically about a couple of grape varieties that I am not sure are grown anywhere else in Texas. You mentioned Turaldigo and the other is Carmenere, two really unique choices. What about those grapes were intriguing to you and how have people responded to them?
3: I'll start with Turaldigo first. Turaldigo comes from Trentino Alto Adige, super northern Italy. When you look at the map, it looks like you're almost to Switzerland. They make a very different Turaldigo than what I've discovered that we can make in Texas. Ours are a lot darker, inkier, bigger bodied. Turaldigo intrigued me because of the size of grape it is, but the color extraction that you can get from that large of a berry. But still a very tight cluster, small cluster. And when Greg and I first started dating, he was working, he had a workshop out in Prague. And so I met up with him post-workshop and we went into Italy and I wanted to try this varietal and just fell in love with it, fell in love with the story of how it became popular because of a female winemaker in Northern Italy. And so it just kind of spurred my interest in it to begin with. 2015 is when we first planted Toraldigo at Nara Vineyards to see what it would do. We planted five acres at the time, and it did beautifully. For a varietal that's Italian, we were worried about vigor or what the fruit would do. Could it handle the Texas heat? Barely had to worry about it. We did our normal passes like everything else. Maybe did an extra pass just to remove a few suckers in late June And then it was harvest. It's been so hands off compared to a Sangiovese, for example. And so that's what really kept it going in the vineyard. And then we got some interest from Pedernales, David Calkin. So we sell a little bit off to him and then we keep most of it for our program here. It's becoming more popular. It's actually been planted at least probably three or four other places that I know of. I think part of that is the nurseries are starting to get more, more grafts going of it to be able to get it out to, to vineyards for purchase. And then the other one, Carminiere. So Carminiere intrigued me because of the pepperiness and the story of Carminiere. It was kind of a lost grape for a long time. Merlot was a popular one in Chile, but the Chileans did not know they weren't growing Merlot. It was Carminiere that they had in the ground and it was doing really well. So again, it's grown at high elevation down there, dry climate. So I think it was a perfect fit for us. Also going back to wanting to grow Cabernet and possibly putting in more Cabernet vines over time and clones. Well, Carmonier is a great pick with Cabernet to make Bordeaux blends in a year that we may want a little bit more spice out of our wines. So I think Carmonier has done well. I know there is a planting out in the hill country of it, but I think it does really well out there. Same thing. It's very similar to to Terraldigo for us, and it could just be where it's planted site-wise in our vineyard. Again, very little management other than the basic passes. Carmenere sets fruit evenly and in the right fruiting zone for us and does not get too vigorous out there for us on that side of the vineyard.
0: I know that it can tend to have an herbal characteristic or a green characteristic if it's not ripe. Do you have any trouble getting it ripe?
3: We do not have trouble getting it right, but we have discovered Carmenere is so finicky in the fact that if you miss your pick window by a few hours, you may lose all those beautiful pyrazines that are characteristic of Carmenere. The only way we learn that is by experience, <laughs> vintage to vintage differences, making wine, and we can definitely attribute it to maybe not picking it at the right time. Hard hard lessons to learn, I'm sure. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so I learned to
0: love wine through Pinot Noir. And in the Pinot Noir world, people talk about clones a lot. I haven't heard people talk as much about clones of Cabernet Sauvignon. Why is that? And how did you choose the clones that you did?
3: I think I do have to definitely give credit to Dan Gatlin on this one. And also Ben, when they first started buying from us. The first things they asked me were clones. And I was, you know, this young kid and were, was very confused of why they were asking about clones, why it meant so much. So it made me look it up and start reading about these clones and why they are so important. Every single clone I can say has a different attribute to make a Cabernet. So, if you do want to get into more blending and Cabernets and you want more of a dark fruit versus a herbal character or a spice character, it is clonal driven. I think you're seeing it more and more in California. Winemakers are talking about clones and what clones they are planting and making. And it's starting to come to Texas. I know uh, when I've gone and done tastings, there have been one or two times we have heard about clones. But I definitely think it's important on the grape growing side and the winemaking side. As a grape grower, It does make a difference what clone you plant in the environment you're growing in. So you must be juggling
0: a lot of different clients for your viticulture business that's in the high plains several hours away that sounds like a big task because you're managing the winery here and the grapes out in the high plains traveling back and forth a good amount as well as fielding questions from winemakers who want to know how things are coming along right
4: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah nikila manages most of the sales of grapes so she has that side i help build some of the infrastructure to track all that but Definitely. And
3: Greg's not giving enough credit to himself, but I think he's made me a better business person on the vineyard side, made me think more about varietals and pricing and contracts. He's made me a little bit stronger (laughs) in speaking my mind, uh, believing in what I'm doing. But I think this wouldn't work without both of us. We also have a two-year-old now. <laughs> and so we juggle things well. We we travel as a unit. We do things as a unit. And so it's it's nice too, because it keeps my mind fresh. I'm not just talking about viticulture and I'm going into sales on the vineyard side or coming in here and getting trained on how to introduce, you know, what we're doing out in the field into the tasting room. But I think it's important for both of us to be on both sides because Greg, yes, he's mentioned he does everything else but growing grapes and (laughs) and is a cellar hand (laughs) in the winery for me. But he does a lot of the research on winemaking as well and what other people are doing in different parts of the world to make their vineyard more successful and I'm trying to implement those slowly. <laughs> he reminds me a lot. <laughs> Greg, I have to imagine that
0: you're maybe the warrior in this family. <laughs> and I think that growing grapes and having a winery is probably filled with like sleepless nights over a lot of different things. Because it's risky to grow grapes or any agricultural product, frankly. You're at the mercy of the weather. And then... You know, the tourism business, selling wine, you have to have a tremendous skill set in many different areas that you wouldn't expect like one person to have all these different skills. So how do you manage all the things you're trying to manage as a business person?
4: So I would say in consulting, you get thrown into the most unusual circumstances that you would have ever predicted. I mean, you'll get thrown on a project and told you need to fly out today and go and solve X, Y, and Z problems. I got thrown onto a payroll project where my client had over 150,000 employees and they needed me to fix the process. I had never done anything with payroll before, so you know, through doing that, you learn a lot of the, the logic that you want to use when you're solving a problem. How to figure out, you know, what your blind spots are, what do you need to go research, et cetera. And so, I'd say for running a business now consulting really helped teach me how to look out for problems understand where I may have blind spots that I need to be aware of and you know maybe put some things in place to avoid some of the risk and so yes there were a lot of sleepless nights I would say mostly when we were trying to get the tasting room built there was a lot of stress when so we bought the land in 2018 took us a while to get construction financing in place so we started construction July of 2019 and didn't get our tasting room open until August of 2020 and COVID kicked off and it was kind of a a lot of hoops and other things and unknowns to jump through as a business owner. And so back then there were definitely a lot of sleepless nights especially since I left my job in end of 2019 to focus on this. So it was a, a lot of unknowns of, "Hey, are we ever going to be able to open? Are we ever going to be able to sell a bottle of wine?" But now that the tasting room is open, we have the winery, we have you know, strong customer base built up and everything is a lot less stressful than it was a couple of years ago.
3: Good. It's also been nice because we've started to build our own team here at the winery and the tasting room. And so Greg can finally start handing off some of the tasks that he has kept him up at night. Mm-hmm. And it's, we're very lucky to be able to employ People.
4: Yes, that's, I think, been a game changer for us, just adding stability. I mean, whenever we, when we first opened and everything was really on the two of us and then maybe some part-time people working in the tasting room, there's not much room for error or anything. Whereas or child. Now, <laughs> 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 yeah, that was the, <laughs> I joked, our first full-time employee hire, I used to call him our paternity leave program because it was the only way that Nikhil and I would get some time away from the tasting room is if we had actually hired someone. And so that was what spurred you know, the first hiring. But that was a very good thing to do. And you know, we built on that. And we're going to have four full-time employees very shortly. So it's oh. nice.
0: You made a big commitment to building your own production facility here, and one of the things that you've just recently made news on is your purchase of an optical sorter. Can you explain what that is and what it does?
3: Yes, yeah, so my first experience with an optical sorter was back in Napa. At the winery I worked for, they would rent it for their highest end, a Cabernet off of Howell Mountain And it reminds me of a machine out of a Dr. Seuss book (laughs) now now that I look back. So we are doing passes throughout the season in the vineyard to try to get the best grapes we can out of that block, that acreage. Then we have a mechanical harvester that does somewhat sort out in the field for us to where we get d stem grapes into the winery, but we still want to take another pass. And the optical sorter... There's three different stages to it. The first one is just a massive hopper that we drop bins into that dejuices everything, and then just the grape berries go up the elevator onto this vibe table. It just shakes really, really fast, levels everything out, and some of the trash gets taken out then. Some of the rachis that may have broken off or leaves. And then it goes on to the optical belt. The optical belt has a camera, and we put in our parameters on like an iPad-like screen. We select the hue, the color, the density, maceration of the berry, and also how many air jets we want to use and how finite we want to make the final bin look and so it goes onto to the optical belt. These parameters are set. The air jets are going off as the camera is seeing what's passing through. It has a trash chute. So anything we don't want goes into this other bin. And then the good stuff goes into a separate bin. And then we have the best of the best berries ended up in that bin. So... It's kind of like I Love Lucy style, but you don't have human error at that point. It is relying on technology. When we started the vineyard, we relied heavily on technology throughout the years, and so we wanted to also bring that on the winemaking side. We work so hard throughout the year that to make the best wine possible, and we've seen it in the w- regions of the world where they have these optical sorters are making very high end wine, and that's where we want our program to be.
4: Yeah. And so the optical sorter can remove 97% of the material we want it to remove. So really the resulting fruit that ends up in the, you know, acceptable bin or whatever we want to call it, the the sorted bin, it looks flawless.
3: We've been looking at it for a couple years, talking about it. Greg went out to Napa. I couldn't go at the time and went to different wineries out there to see it for himself and see if this was the right decision for our program, and we pulled we pulled the trigger after his trip.
4: Yeah, there were some sleepless nights leading up to harvest. <laughs> our optical sorter ended up taking a vacation to the Bahamas because it didn't get unloaded in Houston like it was supposed to. So anyways, <laughs> no. we ended up getting our optical sorter in time for harvest, but there were some stressful times of wondering if everything was going to work out. I
3: bet. Do you use it for all varieties? This past year, we used it on all our reds. We got it when season already started because, again, we started July 26th picking grapes last year, which is unheard of. And so we didn't use it on our whites, but we have talked about it starting this year on using it on everything that comes through this winery.
0: That's interesting. I first heard of optical sorters like you guys probably in Napa for the high-end cabs. And the only criticism I've ever heard of it was from a winery in Sonoma who is kind of more like old-style field blends. And they were saying that, that they want to keep the less ripe berries, for instance, because it gives complexity. And that if you, you know, optimize all your grapes through an optical sorter, that perhaps you're getting a wine that is more one-dimensional than they would prefer.
4: I think every winemaker has their own preferences on what plant material they want to be in the bins. I think generally, it's viewed as a very positive thing to have you know the ripest berries made into wine. That's from what we see typically done at many of the highest end wineries around the world. But yes, there there are winemakers around that you know want all sorts of different things, and so it, it, I mean we have what we believe makes what we, we prefer in wine, but other people have their own preferences.
3: And there are certain varietals that we will, like I said, we set the parameters. We don't set the same parameters for every pass, every varietal that goes through there. So there's certain ones we do want to see those complexities and a little bit of nuance. So those may be a little bit different, but there are certain other ones that we want to put everything to the highest level possible. And is it a fast process really
4: quickly? It can process, I think it's 12 or 14 tons per hour. And so our bins are half ton bins. So could you imagine dumping over 20 of those in the hopper an hour? That's faster speed than we need. So the main thing is when we're pulling fruit off the truck, we can basically go straight into the optical sorter, dump the next bin without hesitating, but it can process far faster than we need as a boutique winery.
0: I know you've been working with Dan Gatlin, who is consulting with you on winemaking issues. Tell me about your collaboration.
4: Yeah, so when we built our production winery in 2021, that was done in alignment with Bring Dan on as a winemaking consultant, along with his son, Spencer Gatlin. And they've worked with us on all of our bottling of our reserve wines from 2017 onward. And yeah, they're just fantastic. Dan probably has the best palate of anyone I've ever come across. It's truly absurd. He'll taste 10 wines alongside each other, one ounce pours of each, and then... Six months later, it feels like he knows how to describe every single wine he tasted in perfect detail, better than anyone else in the room is able to. (laughs) I
3: think also Dan's always been a mentor since the day I met him. I got an email from him soon after the Capitol 100% Texas bill was getting presented and I told Greg, "There's there's a Dan Gatlin reaching out to me from Inwood, and he wants to come look at our fruit." And Greg said, "You show up to that vineyard, whatever time at that red barn that he wants." And it was July; it was hot, and Dan wanted to meet in the middle of the afternoon. And at that time of year, we usually work really early in the morning till about noon, and then we're we're fried. But he showed up, and if you've never seen Dan, he is very tall, and I'm very small. And it can be a little intimidating. And the first thing he told me was, just so you know, I haven't bought anything out in Terry County in a long time. So I'm thinking okay, this is going to be an interesting conversation. (laughs) And we went and sat down for probably a half hour and went through everything we grow our growing style, what we're doing in the vineyard at the time. And then he said, okay, go show me your grapes. And I said, okay, we hopped on into the little Kubota ATV and went out. I remember we were in Cab Franc and he saw little green clusters And the rest of the fruit was going through veraison. And he said, Nikila, the first thing you need to do tomorrow is come through here and cut off all of these right away. And he said, you think you have time, but you don't. This is the time to do it. But the way he approached it and went through the reasoning behind it and taught me, I knew it's someone that I wanted to get a relationship going with, sell fruit to, but also learn from. I remember calling Greg and telling him about my time with him and was like, he He makes sense i I want to know more, and from then on, I think we went to the tasting room pretty soon after together, and we were floored by the wines he was making and um you know as a grower, you want your grapes in his bottle and figuring out what we could do to get it there and Then when we started making wine it was it was an easy call as far as saying who we would love to bring on but Dan doesn't mentor people usually or consult for other wineries. And so we bugged him for a good bit of time and, you know, we laid out what we were looking for. And it's been a great relationship, I think both ways.
4: Yeah, I think him and Spencer too have enjoyed working alongside us because they have a very well established wine program of the wines that they're making. They make some changes from time to time, but, you know, coming over and working with us in our wine program that's very focused on single varietals and some different varietals than they're used to working with, I think has been a a good exercise for them to have a little bit more creativity probably or solve some new problems.
0: A new challenge. Has anything surprised you about what people respond to in the tasting room? And has that changed what kind of wines
3: you're making? Terraldigo was the start of us being talked about. And it's a very happy start, very great start for us. But as we've developed more, I think customers have come in and said, we can totally, we know when it's your wine, we can tell your style, wine to wine, no matter what the varietal is, which is a really nice compliment to get this early on Mm -hmm. in winemaking. But I think we're going more into not only showcasing what the fruit tastes like, because right now a lot of our wines are single varietal. So when we say you're having a merlot reserve, it is 100% merlot, the best barrels we have in the cellar that we're putting into that reserve merlot. Whereas we're not blending anything else into that merlot. We do have a couple of blends that have been really popular, um Italian blend, uh Teraldo, Sagrantino and Sangiovese, as well as a more of a Bordeaux style blend. But I think consumers have surprised me in that they do want to see more Bordeaux and Italian varietals that are a little bit bigger and pushing mm-hmm. the envelope on ripeness. Do you still have the llama and the sheep?
4: We do. So the sheep, we have a, I'm probably going to mix up the order of their names, but the old English Southdown baby doll sheep. It's a breed of sheep that's really small, and they're great to have for vineyards because they're so short they can't eat the grapes and other things off the vines, but they can eat all the weeds around the vines. So we'll move those sheep to the vineyard at times of the year that we want weeding done so we don't have to spray as much. And then the llama is a guard llama. So predators will try and get in and attack the sheep, but the llama is there to protect them. So llamas hate all canines. So a stray dog, a coyote, anything the llama's going to go and confront that and make sure to keep the sheep as safe as possible.
3: Greg has also experienced this straight on from our llama. His name is Dolly. <laughs> oh, he just walked into the picture window he's behind that tree.
4: So what was it? Christmas of 2020. We were in Dallas for Christmas and we made it back to Fredericksburg that day. And I needed to go put out hay for the animals and it was already pitch black. I didn't see the sheep or llama or anything, but I did see some deer. And I was worried that, uh, city slicker, I don't know. I don't know if deer go after the hay or not, but I was worried they were going to steal the sheep's hay. And so I started like clapping and whistling to try and scare them away. And then sure enough, our llama comes charging at me. <laughs> oh! And then I decided to Google how fast a llama can run. And it's like 35 to 40 miles an hour. But I knew when he was running at me that there was no hope of me running away. He's fast. He weighs like 400 pounds. But fortunately, when he was around 20 feet away from me, he stopped because he realized it was me. Goodness.
0: He's was taking a dust bath out there. (laughs) I see the dust flying. He was just on his back. Speaking of dust, my goodness, what about the high plains weather in the past week or so? Oh, my gosh.
3: Yeah. Everything from flurries to dust bowls. We need rain. We desperately need rain. I know everywhere we're all kind of saying the same thing, but it really just helps keep the dust down to where we can get through the vines. Our crews have been working on getting our hail netting set up and it's so hard for them when it's just blowing winds and the dust just it gets everywhere in you. If you haven't experienced West Texas, you can tell yourself, just keep your mouth closed, just walk straight as fast as you can into that door. You get inside, and then you realize you have a mouthful of dust, and you don't even know how.
4: It's not always that bad.
3: (laughs) It isn't. But I'm saying in these dust bowl situations. The week or so prior was really rough,
0: looked like, from photos. I also saw a vineyard owner that had done a before and after picture. And in the before, they had some really nice cover crops. And then in the after, it was just blown to bits. Oh, it's like, you try to do the right thing, right? And sad, you know, you think that maybe that'll help you out and keep things tamped down a little bit, but yeah, it was rough. Yeah. Last question is kind of a big one and you can answer it however you see fit. What excites you about the future of Texas wine and and what makes you excited to be a part of it as both a vineyard owner and a winery
4: owner? It's changing so much. From when we started making wine back in 2017 and started looking for land and everything to now, it's almost completely different than it was back then. I would say that there are a number of changes. I think from the consumer side, you have more people that are taking Texas wine seriously and appreciate really good wine. And so that has some effects throughout the industry when you know customers are willing to invest in really good quality wine then wineries can justify making that and then vineyards can grow higher and higher quality fruit and so that's just night and day change from you know the historical stereotype of Texas wine so that's something that's really great but there's so many new entrants to the area so a lot of new wineries a lot of hotels are coming in distilleries other things and so it's really changing Fredericksburg pretty quickly into More of a seven day a week destination, and I think it's opening up a lot of other doors for Texas wineries to grow. Maybe it's to elevated tastings, maybe it's to distribution. So there are a lot of other avenues that are doors that are opening up because of the changes to the industry, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun for us as business owners to kind of navigate all of those. Yeah,
3: it's fun to be in an area of the industry where people are excited to see what's going to happen and are talking about us, this industry, comparing us to other regions that have been growing grapes for a long time and the similarities. And Greg came on also when the 100% Texas movement was going on, which was really exciting. And at that time, we were just growing grapes and starting to make wine, but didn't have a tasting room. And we kept hearing, well, does the consumer Understand what you're trying to push for. And I went to the Capitol and listened to everything. And when we opened this tasting room, I had that kind of thought in the back of my head. What are customers looking for? What are consumers looking for? And it made us very happy to hear when people would ask us, Where do our grapes come from? What's in this bottle? So customers do care. It is a very much farm to table industry. And it's been exciting to see. I think we also challenge each other in this industry in a positive way. Um, as Greg mentioned, Fredericksburg growing the businesses around us that are coming in to help support the wine industry. We wouldn't be here without the B&Bs. They were the originals in this area that brought tourism, as well as the antique shops, the German history, the museum here. Without them, the wineries wouldn't be here. And, and the peaches. And peaches, absolutely, the peaches and the farmers. And you fast forward to wineries coming in. Well, now it opens up doors for people to open boutique hotels and restaurants. And I think we all have to work together to help this industry thrive.
4: One fun story. It wasn't necessarily fun at the time. <laughs> but back when we had bought the land and we we're looking for a construction loan, we had presented our business plan to a bank. And we were worried that our budget was going to be too small. They were going to think we were building something too small because we saw some other wineries that were coming in and we knew that we weren't competing with them on a price point and other things. But then their feedback actually to us was, oh, aren't all the tasting rooms out there just in mobile homes or RVs? <laughs> and we go... Have you been was, to Fredericksburg? <laughs> it was very eye-opening to us, but for some people that you know maybe don't come out here all the time, that probably wasn't too far removed for them. Maybe, you know, when they came five years before, maybe that was what a lot of Fredericksburg was or was the reality for a lot of new wineries. And I don't think anyone would would make that comment again if they made it out here because it's crazy what's happening.
0: It's an exciting time for sure. I love what you're doing. I hear you have some really fun parties and Indian-themed events and looks like a great time. We
3: do. We try to bring in Indian influences throughout our tastings, whether it's by food or even like what we serve our water in are actually traditional chai cups back home. And so there'll be little nuances throughout, but yes, we do have a few Indian snacks, samosas, and then our big events, what people really do come out for, especially our members, is Diwali and our anniversary dinners, our harvest dinners, and they will hopefully always have an Indian or Italian. Greg's half Italian, so twist to them.
4: (laughs) Yeah, but we like working with a chef out of Houston a lot, Chef Roshni Granani. She's fantastic at coming up with really, I don't know, creative Indian-inspired dishes that people love, and so we feature her in a lot of our events.
0: Well, thanks for giving me a little glimpse into your life. Well, thank you for thank having you. Anything that I didn't ask you that you want to be sure and mention?
4: We're working with Southern Glaciers now for distribution.
0: Oh, that's great. Across Texas. Across, Across Texas. Texas. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, For on-premise, so restaurants. And
4: In the future, off-premise too, I'm sure. <laughs>
0: Well, so start looking for your
3: wines and restaurants all around the state, I guess. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I hope more Texas restaurants believe in Texas wine and carry us on their wine lists.
4: Yeah, um. so that's something that we think is important for the growth of the industry is to put more and more good Texas wine on the shelves, so that people can try it and realize that it, it is worth buying, it is worth visiting, you know, Fredericksburg tasting rooms or tasting rooms throughout the state. And so we want to be a part of that growth of the industry.
3: I think it's very important, too. It was really interesting. COVID wasn't a happy time for many. But the interesting side on the tasting room is I can't tell you how many people we serve that would say, I had no idea Texas made wine. And I hope that never really gets said again, because they're seeing it out in the market and being able to get a great bottle of Texas wine in their hands. For sure. Do you know yet what wines you're going to have in distribution?
4: So Southern Glaciers so far, they've picked up our 2017 non reserve Malbec, our 2017 non reserve Tannat, and then we have a second label called Antima Cellars that they've picked up.
0: Wonderful. I'll have to look for those. Congrats. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Thanks, Nikila
0: and Greg. Stay tuned for Demerits and Gold Stars and more about Teraldigo. All this talk about Turaldigo got me curious, so I went back to the books and the internet to create a nice little summary about this grape. Now that I've finally learned how to pronounce it, I want to keep doing it. So, of course, Turaldigo is a black grape that hails from the northeastern part of Italy, more specifically the region of Trentino Alto Adige. It's one of the leading red grapes of this area. And genetically speaking, Turaldigo is a grandchild of Pinot Noir and an unknown variety – according to Karen McNeil's Wine Bible. But Jancis Robinson says that genetically this wine is a close relation to Syrah. In fact, both may be true, since Pinot Noir and Syrah are generally believed to be genetically linked. One article I read said, Turaldigo wines have Syrah's concentration, power, and wild aromas of black fruit, olives, and herbs, while retaining the soft approach and delicate tannins of Pinot Noir. The grape is known to be intensely colored and very fruity. It's common to find aromas of dark fruit like blackberries and also bright fruits like cranberry and pomegranate, plus spicy pepper, hints of cinnamon, and smoke. Overall, Turaldigo tends to be fresh and bright with mild tannins and punchy acidity, and both of those things are key, mild tannins and punchy acidity. Because of those two factors, it's generally enjoyed young, within three years of bottling, but certain vintages can be aged for up to 10 years. Although the grape has been around for centuries, the number of plantings was rapidly decreasing until the 1980s, when a woman named Elisabetta Foradori introduced her Tiroldigo, rotiliano, and Granato. She's known as the Queen of Turaldigo, and you heard Nikila refer to her in the interview. Her wines are biodynamic, and many of them are aged in amphora. One of her most important contributions to Turaldigo was to change the vine training approach, from pergolas to guillo training. In Italy, there were fewer than 2,000 acres of Turaldigo planted. Besides Trentino Alto Adige, it also grows in Sicily, the Veneto, and Tuscany. In California, it's grown in Yolo County and on the Central Coast. It's also found in New York's Finger Lakes, in Pennsylvania, and in Australia. In Texas, of course. According to the 2020 USDA Grape Report, which admittedly is surely out of date, there are 11 acres of Turaldigo in the state, and 10 of those are in the High Plains. Here are a few Texas Turaldigos to note. Limestone Terrace Vineyards just won Best Texas Red at the Texas International Wine Competition with their 2020 Turaldigo from the Texas High Plains. The same wine also won double gold this year at Houston Uncorked Wine Competition. Besides Colisee Cellars, other wineries making Turaldigo include Bingham Family Vineyards, Peternalis Cellars, and Kerrville Hills Winery. In addition to Nara Vineyards, you can find it planted at Pepperjack Vineyards, Bingham, and Stephen Cindy Newsome Vineyard. This isn't necessarily a complete list, but hopefully that gives you some place to start if you're interested in exploring the grape. Stay tuned for demerits and gold stars. Today, I've got a gold star for several restaurants that have reached out to me recently because they're either opening new restaurants and wanting to offer Texas wine, or they're adding Texas wines to an existing restaurant wine list. This is awesome news, and I'm very happy to hear it. I'm happy to be in touch and will help you however I can. To the restaurant folks listening, when you get your new Texas placements on the menu or your new restaurants open, let me know and I'll give you a shout out on the podcast. And my friends over at the Texas Wine Lover Facebook groups will be excited to hear about these new placements, and they'd love to support you too. Demerits may be back next episode, but I need your submissions, so send me your ideas. You can also send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com. That's it for this episode. I also want to remind you that there are 59 other episodes of This is Texas Wine, that are all free and all available wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't sleep on the old episodes. A lot of new listeners are finding Texas Wine Pod this year, thanks to you sharing the pod with your networks and commenting on and sharing my posts from Instagram and Facebook. So thank you for that. If this podcast resonates with you, please consider supporting it by going to the website and clicking support the podcast. That's where you can donate virtual Texas wine, which is really just a donation to cover my podcast expenses. I sure appreciate it. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter. I have high hopes that I will be sending out a newsletter more regularly in 2023. Not going to lie, it always takes a backseat to actually getting the podcast done. Finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out TXWineLover.com for the new interactive trip planner, a rich collection of blog posts reviewing Texas wines and wineries, and more. And don't forget about the new app i hope you'll be attending texas wine events and festivals this spring please say hi if you're attending the texas wine auction rootstock or toast of texas ticket links are available in the show notes so get yours today i'll be back in two weeks with an interview with dan gatlin of inwood estate winery cheers y'all